Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The Lager Queen of Minnesota has already earned some wonderful praise. Jonathan Evison calls it pure reading joy, warm, funny, informative, and full of heart. Janet Fitch writes of it, utterly charming. Straddle loves and knows his history and his affection for the Midwest with all its stubbornness, stoicism, long memories, gleams on every page. J. Ryan Straddle is a contributing editor at Taste Magazine. His best-selling debut, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, won the 2016 American Booksellers Association Indies Choice Award for Adult Debut Book of the Year. That's the longest award title I've ever read. <laughs> keeps going. Uh, and also the 2016 Midwest Booksellers Choice Award for Debut Fiction. Born and raised in Minnesota, he now lives in Los Angeles. We're thrilled to have him with us this evening. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Oh, wow, thank you. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, but you here in this room are my home. So thanks for being the people that have made my 21 years in this, uh, this city uh, better and better. Um, many of you also, unlike people in any other room I've been in until now, read p bits and pieces or versions of this. And so you had some idea of what what happened to make this book possible, like George is kind of, yeah, I'm looking at him over there, and Julia right in the middle, and Lou Matthews over there. Um, yeah, and somewhere there's Meg Howery uh, uh, with the, with the re uh, broken off from the guilty remnant. Yeah, there she is, all right. Um, yeah, but before I continue, I just want to uh, ask one thing. Are there any current or former teachers or librarians in the audience? Well, that's wonderful. I thank you so much. I'm here because of you. When I was uh, a kid, it was the teachers and librarians in my young life who saw this skinny, nerdy little guy sitting in a corner, obsessed with various things that had nothing to do with school. And uh, you put books in my hands and led me on a path that put this one in my hands. I often feel that having one name on a book cover is insufficient. There, it needs to be 30. And uh, I think of the uh, teachers in my life that helped get me to this point, the elementary school librarian, Pat Schultz, you know, and um, I've been lucky enough to start my tour in Minnesota where many of them came, and uh, I think about it now every, uh, every stop, you know, and I just want to shout out to the teachers and librarians that continue to work with kids and, and uh, help, them <laughs> uh, help them focus you know, if they need it, and uh, also... Uh, you know, giving them books to put in their hands, and you, you, you don't know where it's going to lead. Um, yeah, this book, man, this book took me uh, almost four years to write. I started writing in March of 2015 about, oh, yeah, about four months before my first book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, came out. And, um, yeah, my first draft of this book was a really turgid mass of... Uh, <laughs> Of, of, of characters and plot lines. It had nine point of view characters and 18 chapters, and it was 580 pages long. 
but I, I, I knew, and I think other people who read that version also suspected that there was a novel in there somewhere. You know, that by throwing, you know, by going to Costco, buying all of their food and throwing it on the floor of your kitchen, you might eventually have dinner. And so, yeah, that's, this book represents an assiduous three-and-a-half-year process of digging through um, Costco for dinner, uh, you know, for, for ingredients. And the book always had a beer plotline in it, but as the book became smaller, that plotline expanded, and it became the book that I hold my hands today that represents the story of three characters, not, not eight, uh, and these three characters all happen to be women who either set out to or end up working in the beer industry in Minnesota. Now, before I continue uh, about that, I, I have to emphasize you don't have to like beer to like this book. In fact, my main character, Edith, the first time she's given an IPA, she says, that tastes like dirt if someone put it on the grill. And when offered a bottle of it, she puts it hands it back and says, nope. But... Um, at the beginning of the story, she starts off pretty far away from being a brewer. She's working as a dietary aide at a nursing home called St. Anthony Waterside, where she's taken it upon herself to create better desserts for the residents than they're getting. And um, yeah, that's where, that's where we first meet her, and I'll read a little bit about her from that point. It was July 5th. 2003. Why did, I, why did I do that? Why couldn't that be like August 1st, 2003? Way easier to say. It was July 5th, 2003. Yeah. From now on, it's going to be August 1st. Yeah. And Edith Magnuson's day hadn't been too bad so far. She'd just taken a strawberry rhubarb pie from the oven, like the one here today. Thank you, Ann Binney and Tom Benton, for supplying the pot pie and the beer. Yeah. She had just taken a strawberry rhubarb pie from the oven and was looking for her favorite tea towel when she saw a grasshopper on the white trim of the windowsill. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how, probably what I would tell the grasshopper. Uh, she didn't like the idea of it sitting there vulnerable, so she gently poked at the bug with the handle of a wooden spoon. As she'd hoped, the grasshopper leapt into the yard and vanished into safety. Then, Edith felt terrible. Maybe it just wanted a little vacation somewhere, and then she came along and ruined everything. <laughs> Edith, for one, had never once been anywhere different or ever truly had a break of any kind. Then again, she'd never intended to take one. Things were pretty decent where she was. And she'd never see the point about belly aching about the things she couldn't change, especially in a world that never once ran a want ad looking for a complainer. After all, she had a good job at St. Anthony Waterside Nursing Home from... Two, six blocks away from her rented two-bedroom rambler in the small Minnesota town of New Stockholm. Edith also had her husband Stanley, who at that moment was in a Peterbilt somewhere in South Dakota. She had an adult son, Eugene, who was just starting out as an independent distributor for an interesting company called LifeWell, which apparently sold quality household products direct to consumers at low prices. <laughs> she had an adult daughter, Colleen who'd gone to college, and even though she had to drop out, had done okay for herself. Colleen had married a handyman named Mark, who was a kind man, even if he didn't go to church. 
They were raising Edith's sole grandchild, a smart, curious girl named Diana, who is somehow almost a teenager already. Now, if that, all that wasn't everything a person needed, she didn't know what would be. You know, it's true that she missed the farm where she grew up, and she missed her sister for one reason and her parents for another reason, but there was no use dwelling on things and people that were in the past. Now, Edith was only 64 years old, but if she died right then, she would have felt the most important things a Minnesotan woman or man can feel at the end of her lives, can feel at the end of their lives. She was, she'd done what she could, and she was of use. She helped. But life wasn't done with her yet, and before long, she'd come to regard everything that happened before July 5th, 2003, <laughs> like it was all just a pleasant song in an elevator. Now, when the music stopped and the light first fell in, it was in the form of her boss, a man she liked, running down the hallway, waving a piece of newspaper in the air like a child. Now, Edith's co-workers were mostly hardworking, exhausted, and kind. The hallway smelled like baby powder sprinkled onto boiled green beans, which, over the years, had become kind of pleasant. And everyone agreed that this new boss, Brendan Fitzgerald, had the benign charisma and calm authority of a TV meteorologist and was the best administrator they ever had. Now, he also chain-smoked and only referred to the residents by their room number, but at least he was always glad to see Edith, and that day he was the happiest she'd ever seen him since he'd won 50 bucks playing pull tabs. Brendan, his slick black Reagan hair gleaming under the fluorescent lights, held out a copy of Twin City Talker, one of those hip city newspapers for hip city people. <laughs> now, Edith had flipped through an issue once, 20 years ago, and thought it was kind of different, so, so she never read it again. I'm glad a lot of people know what Minnesotans mean by the word different. It's the worst thing something could be. It's like, it, it depends where you, who you ask, but it's up there with interesting. She never read it again. Food issue, this cover read, and Brendan tore it open to a page somewhere in the middle. Did you hear about this? He asked her. She saw a list with the heading, Best Pies. Number one, Betty's Pies, Two Harbors. Number two, Keys Cafe and Bakery, St. Paul. And number three, St. Anthony Waterside Nursing Home, New Stockholm. Our nursing home has the third best pie in Minnesota. Well, that's bizarre, Edith said. No, it's not. It's because of number eight's granddaughter. You know, remember the girl with the pink hair? Ellen Jones, that's her, staff food critic. Neat. Well, I better get to the kitchen. I'm going to get it framed and put in the lobby, Brendan said. That's something, Edith. Third best pie in the whole entire state. Now, Edith had been baking her own pies at work since her first year there when she noticed that the Apple cobbler, purchased pre-made from a contracted vendor, had been coming back in unusually high quantities, most just one or two bites smaller, some with one bite missing and a moist chunk of the stuff elsewhere on the plate. <laughs> one resident, a wonderful old stick in the mud named Donald Gustafson, had sent his back with a note reading, make it stop. <laughs> but when you see a man falling off a ladder above you, Edith believed, you don't envision your arms breaking, you just hold them out. There's, that's her. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
That's Edith, and Edith is an amalgam of a number of women I knew growing up in Minnesota, my mom, and uh, definitely my grandmother, Doris, who is one of the people this book is dedicated to. Now, when I called Doris the other day to ask if she'd received the book I mailed her, she said yes, and she'd started reading, and I said, well, did you notice it's dedicated to you? And she said, oh, I skip all that stuff in the front. <laughs> You're 95 years old. A book is dedicated. You're one, she's one of the biggest readers I know. She's like, I, I get to the good stuff. I don't need any of that stuff in the beginning. It slows you down. I'm like, well, you might want to leaf back through. And then I'm like, she's like, which page? You know, I'm like, oh, find it on your own. Like, enjoy it in the privacy of your own home. Yeah. Anyway, really sweet woman. Yeah, it's a woman who uh, spent a lot of my young life driving me to libraries, the big cool city libraries in Minneapolis, where I could get the really good books on dinosaurs and Greek mythology and U.S. presidents and all the other weird shit I was into. And, uh, I, and, but, but also the coolest thing she used to do for me when I was a little kid and I was into trains. I was three years old. I loved trains. We would drive around the city until we found bars about to go down. Like we wanted to be stopped <laughs> at the intersection. So we could be right in front and I could like, you know, keep track of all the Burlington Northern boxcars and that kind of stuff, the, the, the taxonomy of, of, of preschool childhood. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Doris in her, and there's a lot of, you know, my mom and me and other people in Edith's sister who is very different from Edith. Her name is Helen, and uh, without giving too much away, I think it's on the back or in the flap copy, that's another thing I didn't know. You have to write your own flap copy. I thought, really? Yeah. You know, you guys read the book, right? Right? <coughs> so anyway, um, yeah, somewhere in there, I'm pretty sure I described that. Helen more or less cheats Edith out of her half of the farm inheritance from the farm where they grew up. But Helen had a good reason for it. She had a plan in life. She was going to open a brewery, and she did. She went to McAllister College where she majored in chemistry and she met a guy named Orville Blotz who was the heir to uh, the fourth most popular cream soda in western Wisconsin, Blotz Cream Soda. But before that, Blotz was a brewery uh, until Prohibition. They resuscitated in the 60s, which was a terrible time to open a brewery in Minnesota or anywhere. The year they opened a brewery, there were actually seven breweries in Minnesota. The year I was born in 1975, there were uh, 120 in the entire country. Now there are over 120 in Minnesota. But in 1975 for Helen, she was one of a dwindling number of under seven. I think there were five breweries in Minnesota. I made her number six. And uh, they're struggling to stay alive. So they needed an angle. But this was before IPAs. Be not many ales were even being made then. Everything was still this, some variation of a bottom fermented lager. How do you stay alive in 1975? Well. You make light beer. <laughs> and uh, Helen and her husband, Orville, they figured out the chemistry behind it as former chemistry students, but they didn't yet know how to market it. And this is their attempt to sell light beer to the people of Minnesota. <laughs> Helen and Orville took out a small loan to help buy ad space and produce local spots. And even if it would suck up over half the, oh boy, this is a little ahead, that's close. You know what? I'll read just a little bit more than that. I'll, I'll get to that. That Sunday, Helen convened the two other people who comprised their new in-house advertising team. 
One was their smart, well-dressed, good-looking financial manager, Joe Foxworth, and the other was Orville. They sat in a corner of a dark wooden bar where the Minnesota Vikings were on TV crushing the Cleveland Browns. Sorry, Cleveland. Yeah. Sorry. That, but actually was happening that weekend. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the historically accurate parts in this book. And most everyone in the room was in a good mood. Helen was in a good mood because Joe Foxworth had bought her the surf and turf. He came from money, like Orville once had, only Joe had the good sense not to spend it all on opening a brewery. Okay, Joe Foxworth said. It's a mild beer, right? So how about blots? It's the mildest. <laughs> no, Helen said. Sounds like a cigarette ad. He was a buddy of Orville's from high school, and Joe, he claimed to love slogans and ad copies, so writing them, so Helen expected him to deliver. All right, then we'll call attention to some arbitrary detail, like the fact that it's in a can. Blots. It's in the can. <laughs> no, Helen said. That, uh, you know, that's fine for the regular blots, but this new beer actually is different. I know, it's light, so it's a diet beer. Nope, that was tried and failed. All right, then what else does light beer mean to the average drinker? Helen had begun to worry that perhaps Joe hadn't struggled enough in life to develop any real sense of ingenuity. <laughs> it means you can drink a lot of them and not get hammered. Her husband Orville just appeared to be staring off into space. Are we not holding your interest, Helen asked him. Drink lots, Orville said. It's blots. What? Drink lots, it's blots. <laughs> sure, Joe said before she could speak. I like it. Now, as that four-word phrase, drink lots, it's blots, fell onto Helen's consciousness like a zeppelin landing on a kidney bean. She didn't, didn't feel anything exactly. She saw something. She saw it on billboards, bus benches, TV ads, ball caps, for years and years. Orville, my fire, my angel, she said, grabbing her husband's skull in her hands. Do you realize what this means? What? It means we could be doing this for the rest of our lives. Now, Helen and Orville took out a small loan to help buy ad space and produce local spots. Even if it would suck up over half the funds, Orville was convinced they needed a celebrity pitch man. This is where Joe Foxworth proved his value. Hey, I know a guy, he told Helen one afternoon, running up to her as she was leaving the bathroom. My brother's freshman year roommate at Augustana was in training camp with the Vikings. His name's Rudd Herzog. He said he'll do it. Helen wasn't really listening, so she was impressed. <laughs> you, you have a friend on the Vikings? Uh, well, he didn't make the team, but he lasted until final cuts. Oh, so he's not actually on the team then. Oh, no, but he's a big man. He still looks like a football player. But he isn't one, and nobody's heard of him. No, but trust me. Using his own money, Joe shot a spec commercial with Rudd Herzog, which Helen Orville weren't even aware of until he showed it to them on his home film projector. 
Joe flicked off the lights in the image of a giant bearded man in an unspecific football jersey appeared on a pull-down screen. Hi, I'm Rudd Herzog. You probably don't remember me from my career on the Vikings. It was my lifelong dream to play for them. Last year, I had my one chance, and I didn't make it. That was real depressing. We've all had days like that, I guess. After getting cut, I felt like drinking a lot of beer. Thank goodness my local beer had Blot's Special Light. With its easygoing flavor and low calories, you can drink a ton of them. You can drink it all night and you'll feel all right. Drink lots of Blot's. It's kind of sad, Helen said. I don't know. I like it, Orville said. He speaks for a lot of people right now. Joe nodded. Oh, I sure hope he does. Now, Helen held firm in her opposition to the ad, but she was outvoted two to one, and with some minor edits, it hit the local airwaves. It turned out to be, it was one of the few times she was wrong, but at least she could admit it. Do you realize that Blot's special light didn't even exist yet when Rudd Herzog was cut from the team, Helen told the men. Nobody cares, Joe said. <laughs> So yeah, there's uh, three, three characters in here, uh, the last of which is Diana. Diana is Edith's granddaughter. She uh, eventually ends up running a brewery herself. And um, Diana, um, you know, I guess without giving too much away, ends up employing her grandmother, Edith, to run the brewery. Now, as I said earlier, Edith hates beer, can't stand it, you know, doesn't like any variety of beer. But she'll work at a brewery to help, you know, to be of use, you know. So when called upon to make a beer, she decides to make a beer that she would drink. You know, she has to, she's, she's given some options. I mean, she figures out, like, what that would be. Hold on, I just have to find it. I put my bookmark in the wrong place. Of course, I did. Let's see. Hold on. What? Why did I not check that before I came here? Oh, there it is. Okay, got it. Okay, sorry. Thanks for, thanks for waiting. So, yeah. Edith makes a beer. There's a person in this book, in the mythology of this book, that is the person to please when uh, a beer is put to market, a beer critic for a magazine called Independent Brewer. His name is Pete Flavor Dave Michaels. <laughs> He's named after uh, a former roommate of mine and his two brothers, uh, Michael, David, and Pete. Um, and so Flavor Dave hates everything. He's one of these consummate cynics, a hipster, too smart for his own good, loves ripping things down. He's built an entire career out of insulting other people's beer. And um, I wanted to go in a different direction with him. Like some people, I love a good enthusiastic review. And I, I love the idea of an enthusiastic review from an unlikely source. 
like a few people in this room, I'm looking at one person in particular, Rico Galliano. We, we, we share a mutual love for Steve Albini's review of Slint's album Spiderland. And that was, a, that was a small inspiration for Flavor Dave's review of Grandma Edith's rhubarb pie in a bottle ale from Artemis Brewery. Let's all take a step back from the ledge, people. <laughs> we were on the ledge and we didn't know it, see? Uh, let's remember that most of us who are old enough to drink in America were born in a country where the vast majority of beer was piss-poor lager made from a handful of companies. If you claim you love any of that watery effluence now, it's either because you've tethered it to some insidious nostalgic sentiment or because you're too cheap to drink anything better. Either way, when your liver kills you out of spite, <laughs> it's your own damn fault, and I hope your city coroner has the guts to call your death a suicide. <laughs> Since every other product in the world is rapidly becoming what beer was in 1975, and for the same reasons, let's pause at this moment. It's a glorious time, perhaps never to be seen again, and even as I write this, my fridge rattles 20 feet away, crowded with 13 varieties of beer from 21 different brewers, all of which I can visit in under an hour's drive. I weep for the inevitable demise of this era, and most of all, its ability to surprise me. As you know, I buy most of my beer at Craig's Wine and Spirits in Dinkytown, half of it special ordered by K.T. Craig, the smartest and therefore angriest woman in customer service. <laughs> Last night, Katie immediately handed me a six-pack of something called Grandma Edith's Rhubarb Pie in a Bottle and told me to go home, drink this crap, and shut up. <laughs> she helpfully added that if I didn't like it, something was wrong with me because every white hipster who she had the tolerance to remember had come in either to buy it or ask about it. Now, the hipster crowd does love an unlikely origin story, and this is a memorable one. This brewer, Artemis, is operating out of the old Heartlander facility in Nicollet Falls, and the brewmaster, Diana Winter, is the same ex-Heartlander employee who brewed her, brewed her first IPA at age 19. She's hanging her own shingle now, but before we confuse it for some bootstrapped operation, the reader should bear in mind that she has earned professional facilities and relationships far beyond the reach of most first-time brewmasters. With these home-field advantages, she needs to be up to something different and interesting to be respected. And indeed, there's some super freaky shit happening, <laughs> starting with the girls on her payroll. Ms. Winter's entire production team is a cadre of women over 65, all of whom happen to be grandmothers, and one of whom is apparently this self-same Edith. I had my doubts, but it's the real thing. An actual damn Grandma Edith made this beer. That's not even my favorite thing about it. My favorite thing about it is, it's just okay. <laughs> and before I explain why that's my favorite thing in the world, you should hunt this shit down and drink as much of it as possible because this beer represents something nearly extinct from every shelf in every store in America. This beer doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fill any obvious market niche, meet a known customer demand, or pursue any recognizable trend. This beer is merely the ultimate expression of its brewer, a 79-year-old woman named Edith Magnuson, who has next to no internet footprint, <laughs> and about one millionth the social media presence of my neighbor's two-year-old. 
What little exists about Edith online indicates that she may have worked as a nurse, may have worked at a nursing home in New Stockholm, where her pies had become enough of a foodie fetish to turn the joint into a brutal Friday night dinner reservation. <laughs> However, there is nothing to indicate any access to or even interest in brewing, until this pie in a bottle, which seems like a smoking gun of a correlation. The actual pie was almost certainly better. This beer has a fluffy pink two-finger head and smells like malty rhubarb, so it's certainly not out to fool anybody. But no flavor notes I can write, however, are sufficient. In many ways, they're beside the point. Even as the primal forces that created the beer of the 1970s from the beer of the 1870s recast their shadows, hope remains in this specific bottle. Because all of the chemists, focus groups, AI, and boardrooms in the world will never create a beer like Grandma Edith's. This beer is flawed, wonderful, and strange in a way only a certain kind of weird individual could devise. <laughs> and it renders every other beer on the shelf a faceless SKU. <laughs> Grandma Edith was just making a beer she wanted to drink because it didn't exist yet. And the result is not a beer in the sense you know it. <laughs> it is the heart and guts and ignorance and beauty and dreams of Edith Magnuson and that is all. God bless it and God bless America. Rating 100 out of 100. There's one more line in that section. That line is, Flavor Dave is now in an infinite sabbatical. <laughs> All right, I think it's, it's, we're probably ready for some questions and conversation. This is a, a crowd that I both anticipate and fear the questions from. <laughs> oh, and there's my partner, Brooke. Everyone say hi to Brooke. Hey, thanks for taking pictures. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Anyone want to talk to me? Anyone? All right. Yeah. Oh, yes, Todd, in the middle of the back. Yeah. The first beer that I loved, wow, what a great question. It depends what you mean by love. I mean, it took me a long, it took me a oh, that I wanted to drink more of, because it took me a while to even tolerate beer. My first beer was a Miller Lite when I was 15 at Angie Malm's house. Yeah, yeah, no. I know. You know what? I think it was an MGD, because when I was 16 or 17, I mowed the lawn on a hot July day in Minnesota. And my mom would buy these, like, cute little bottles of MGD that maybe they still make them. You know, like eight-ounce bottles or six-ounce bottles? They're about, yeah, like the size of a baseball if you sat on it for 100 years. And um, I, I asked my dad if I could have one of those because I'd always heard that beer was refreshing after a hard day's work. <laughs> and it actually kind of was. You know, he just told me not to get used to it, not to have more than one of them. Yeah, so maybe that. Maybe Miller Genuine Draft. Yeah, it's the first time I liked beer or got it, you know, like I get it, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, any other? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, over here. Yes, please. Yeah. What dessert would you rather eat? Would you rather eat Edith's pies or Pat Tiger's bars? Oh, wow. <laughs> the question was, would I rather eat Edith's pies or Pat Prager's bars? Um, boy. Well, I put a recipe for peanut butter bars on my last book. I did 122 events for my last book, probably 80 of which serve those bars. <laughs> I'll take the pie. <laughs> uh, yes, Mike. Oh, wow. What was the research process? A lot of people who helped me with the research is here in the room, like uh, Ryan Vincent, who's here in the front row. Um, yeah, it was just going to breweries, asking questions. Um, 
Yeah, uh, over the course of about three and a half years before and during, and you're during the final stages of writing this book, Troubleshooting Facts. Yeah, just basically quizzing brewmasters and asking very increasingly specific questions about the process. Now, I'm also probably as heavy as I've ever been. I went to have a physical in June before the start of the book tour, and my doctor said, what's up with you? What are you doing differently? And I said, well, I've had a lot of beer in the last year. And he said, could you cut out the beer for the next six months? No, I said. Uh, so, yeah, well, yeah, it, it's been tough research, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, any, anything else? Uh, yes, yes, please. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah, does Minnesota have old school lager purists? Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, there's some heritage labels there, uh, like Green Belt, Hams, Schmidt, uh, which at one point were their own brewery. Uh, now they're actually mostly owned by another lager brewery that survived them uh, called Shells who I uh, interviewed for researching Helen's Brewery. Uh, they were super helpful. Yeah, so yeah, there's still a lot of loyalists for that northern Midwest lager that hasn't really changed that much in 100 years. Um, but yeah, and now increasingly, there are craft brewers making lagers too. Um, but yeah, no, big time in the Midwest. And that's, that was an earlier barrier for entry for... Um, well, not barrier for entry, just an obstacle or a distraction for an up-and-coming craft brewer, a new craft brewer in Minnesota, like 10 years ago, was you had to make something that was going to be some kind of gateway drug for the people drinking Grain Belt. You couldn't just throw a double IPA or an imperial stout at them and say, this is beer. They wouldn't recognize it as such. They'd say, this isn't what I'm used to. So you had to make a Kolsch or, you know, Blonde Ale or something. And now they're actually making lagers, but... Back then, it was, yeah, they had to win those people over, and there's still a lot of them. Uh, yes, right there in the middle. Um, I appreciate that you write about the Midwest, because um, I actually went to Michigan, Minnesota, mm. which is delightful. Um, uh, well, one of the authors I go back to a lot when I'm w actively writing is Alice Munro because I really like her rural Ontario settings, and I find them to be pretty similar to rural Minnesota and the parts of Minnesota I grew up in know. Um, but yeah, also, uh, yeah, Louise Erdrich, I like the way she writes about the Midwest, uh, Jane Smiley. Yeah, there, there's a lot of them, but uh, one of my North Stars is certainly Alice Munro because of how consistent her settings are and how similar they are to mine. Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. Thank you. Do I do I ever drink wine? Wow. Yeah, I've been known to. Yeah. 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 In a, in an interview I was fortunate enough to have with uh, with Rico the other day, we talked about this a little bit, uh, where um, I chose beer largely because I didn't know much about it, and so I created characters to teach me about beer. I created characters that mostly didn't know anything about beer themselves and set them into the world and. They became cosmonauts of inquiry for me. But with wine, I feel like I know enough that it's kind of boring. Um, or, and I, I've got to find an angle into it that, that will teach me something. You know, there's also a lot of wine books out there. But I will say that if I do write a wine book, it probably won't be set in Minnesota. <laughs> the wines of Minnesota, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
They exist. Yeah, yeah, thank you. But yeah, no, I, I love wine, and maybe I'll write about it someday. Uh, yes, Nikki. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, I hadn't thought about the gendered aspect of that. No, they seem to use the word brewmaster, whether, you know, it's a man or a woman. It should be brew person or like brew, uh, like, like what, what's another nice designation for like a brew commander or like, <laughs> yeah, brew matrix, what? Brew matrix, thank you, Aaron. <laughs> My God, I love you, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to stop and acknowledge so many great writers here in this audience. Like I look out here and I see a library of books I want to read and, and people whose books I have read and, and uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, sharing your work with the world and coming here to uh, uh, support mine. And, you know, um, can't wait to be in the audience for several books I can see in the audience that are underway. Um, yeah, any other questions? Oh, yes, okay, in the back, yes. Yeah. I, I that's what I, that's what I think people claimed it was because of the effort it took. It was one of those things where because it was rare and elusive, uh people ascribed uh not only value to it but quality. Um <laughs> Yeah, and uh it's 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 funny. Yeah, I mean like just like you know, what, what, uh, Smoking the Bandit could have been just as easily said in Minnesota because the relatives I spoke to about Coors growing up, they're like, oh, yeah, like, we'd hear a story of, uh, oh, like, Bill's brother was going to drive to Wyoming and get some, you know, and then bring it back. He drove 13 hours straight. There was all this extremely stupid stuff that only, like, 22-year-old men do, you know, and, and a lot of it involved, you know, bringing, you know, it went, 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 you know a lot of it... Uh, 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 involved Coors, Coors Banquet in particular. And I think my dad still swears by it. Like when you ask him, what's a really good beer? It's like, oh, this modern Coors is terrible. It's the banquet that was good. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you were, you know, now you've also, you're ascribing a nostalgia-tinged value to it. So you'll never recover any actual meaning from this that, 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 that is objective. Um, but that said, yeah, no, everything I, I, I understand from everyone I spoke to um, in Minnesota was that Coors was as desired there as anywhere. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah. How, we, uh, how, how, how are we doing for time? I've kind of lost track. Hey, Michael Loomis. Hey, good to see you, man. Yeah, this is so great. Um, oh, uh, yes. Oh, yes, uh, Carmel, another wonderful writer. How are you doing over there? Yeah. I'm hanging in there. I love this room. I love these people. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Oh, wow. And how do you keep hold of that voice? Do you have lines that represent her? Like, how do you okay. know? And how do you All right. So, uh, question was, how do I know when a character is crystallized? When do I know that I've got them? Um, I guess when I put them to a test and they surprise me. I grew up in a family of Minnesotans that were, to put it mildly, conflict averse. <laughs> Just like a lot of the Midwestern families we grew up with. And 
my, one of my favorite things to do in narrative when writing a book is to put Midwesterners in conflict situations to see what happens to these people. And, um, you know, it's more than just throwing rocks at them and chasing them up a tree or taking away everything they love. It's like finding something they'd specifically not like to happen or putting them in a situation where they don't know how they're going to be. They're going to be compromised in a way they didn't expect, you know, and they're going to have to adapt in the moment as well as in the long term to this. And, um, yeah, because I really, really love my characters, this is really hard to do. Uh, like, I don't want to make them suffer, but I, I, I must. And, 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 if, and when they do, that's, that's when I know they, uh, you know, they're, they're real to me because they, uh, they, they survived it. And their, their reaction to it is what uh, proves the, proves the uh, integrity of their character to me. Yeah. All right, yes, in the middle, yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, both of my books so far have focused on female protagonists. Well, this one ended up being that way because uh, the only people that survived the culling process from the eight point of view characters happened to be the women. <laughs> but the male characters were actually way less interesting, so it wasn't a fair fight. I mean, Stanley used to have his own chapters. And Stanley's a really sweet guy. I love Stanley. But he's a truck driver, and he doesn't make beer. See ya. But my female characters, especially in this book, and uh, so much in the last one, too, were um, inspired by my mom. I mean, she's the reader I think of when I write. Um, she's the you know, per main reason I'm a writer, primary reason I'm a writer. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for her like assiduous support of my life. Um, you know, she passed away about uh, 14 years ago. Didn't even uh, survive to see my first short story published. But, um, you know, uh, when I started taking classes at UCLA Extension with Lou Matthews, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, and like Lou also says something really wonderful that I, I'm going to quote him twice here. He says, always be ready to take credit for what people read into your work or, you know, how people remember you. And one of the things I remember Lou telling me in some fashion was when he would read the entertaining stories or stories I thought were entertaining, I mean, for a long time, I wrote stories to entertain myself and my friends. And uh, those of you who knew me in the early part of my career, like, probably remember some of these stories. And uh, like, Lou checked on my work and said, oh, it's, it's pretty good, but it'll get better once you start writing about things you care about. And uh, he was right, you know. I decided to go into the unresolved grief I had in relationship to my mom and go into writing about my family in a very direct way, in a way I'd always been avoiding, always kind of been covering up. You know, I went to where it hurt, and um, it was good. Um, there were plenty of times. I used to write until I made myself laugh, and now I was crying while I was writing. And uh, I thought, well, this is, you know, I'm getting somewhere here. This, these books, both of these books kind of became conversations with my mom. Um, I felt her very, very vibrantly in these characters and uh, felt her criticism in them, um, guiding them, um, so yeah, I'd say that's a primary reason is that I feel like I write for her. She's the one person I'm thinking about and um, you know, I want to do her proud wherever she is. Yeah, anything else? Yeah. We got a, any, any other questions in the, in the world? Well, okay, all right. Okay, one more from Mike and then we'll call it a night, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. 
Uh, the question was, I seem to care very deeply about work and labor and putting in work every day, and where does that come from? Well, yeah, when I was born, my parents were pretty poor. Um, my dad was a waitress, and my, and my dad was working on a farm. And, uh, and I, I, I don't remember being without a lot of stuff, but I remember my parents later telling me that they were super stressed out because apparently I really wanted picture pages. It was this thing from the 70s. Yeah, some of you might remember it. I think it had to do with Bill Cosby, but I don't, I don't actually remember. I don't even remember wanting picture pages. But what my parents remember about my early childhood was how distraught they were at being unable to provide me with picture pages. That was their takeaway. And, uh, you know, eventually both my parents went back to college, completed college degrees, improved their lives, became happier, had very robust second acts. Um, but... Um, what I, I, what I remember from my childhood was, man, just uh, the reality of people living paycheck to paycheck and struggling to get by and not eating for pleasure, like eating for sustenance, you know. Uh, the only grievance I have with my parents is that even once they got college degrees and became more successful and made more money and we moved to a larger house and were happier as we still ate terrible food. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I will hold that against them, but everything else, like I look back on with, with a, a lot of fondness and also knowing that I come from a large family of uh, nurses and truck drivers, and um, in my opinion, not enough, not enough people write about them. And, and sometimes when they do, they don't write about them with the affection that I will have when I write about them. I mean, I want to see nurses and truck drivers and uh, senior citizens represented with uh, depth and clarity and sadness and beauty, and I, I, I feel I'm up for that challenge. You know, I mean, that, that was my whole world. My whole world was babies, old people, nurses, and truck drivers, you know, and um, that's, that's part of my DNA. I've got to write about these people, man. It's kind of a miracle I'm even here when you think about it. I'm not supposed to be here, you know. I, my mom was the first person in her family to go to college, you know. They, they didn't expect to raise a writer. My mom sure as hell tried to be a writer herself, you know, but no one in my life growing up ever said you could make a living at it, ever said you ought to do it. You know, I did it because I just wanted to. Um, and, man, so using that, like having the benefit of their life experience and their heart put in my blood, I feel, man, I got to honor that. You know, these people, they crawled so I could walk. Yeah, anyway, I'll end there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. I imagine there's going to be some kind of signing table here. And in the meantime, help us finish off this beer, right, right, Tom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Thanks again so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.